The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hi there and welcome to episode 6 of Things Are About To Get Weird. If this is your first time listening, this is a podcast dedicated to all things bizarre. So if you're the kind of person who is fascinated by the stranger things in life, you're in the right place. After delving into the unexplained phenomenon of spontaneous human combustion last week, I'm taking a turn back into true crime territory for this episode. And not only is it true crime territory, but it's also local territory for me as well, as this case took place in Greater Manchester, and many of the key locations are places I visit often and know very well. So I'm going to be telling you the story of John and Mark today, and before I go any further, I did want to give a quick warning and also make something super clear from the outset. This story does involve two people who were teenagers at the time the events occurred, and it does get pretty rough, so although the real name of John has been revealed in recent years, I'm choosing to use only the aliases that they were given within the case, so I'm only going to refer to them as John and Mark. Also, like with the very first story I covered on this podcast, that of Ursula and Sabina Erickson, I believe that when talking about true crime stories, it's important to me that I don't just throw a wild story at you and say, wow, isn't that weird, and sort of leave it at that. One of the main reasons I wanted to cover this story is because I think there are still very valuable lessons to be learned from it, and whilst, yes, it is fascinating and full of bizarre details and odd twists, the people involved are real, and it's vital to remember that. I'll also be putting mental health resource links in the show notes. So with all of that said, let's get into the story. If you've ever visited the northern English town of Altrincham, you'll probably understand why it's one of the most sought-after places to live in Greater Manchester. It's about 8 miles or 13 kilometres southwest of Manchester city centre, and today it's a really vibrant, affluent town for the most part, with a trendy market hall full of independent food and drink stalls, some great shops and boutiques, and it generally has a really cool atmosphere. It's somewhere I really enjoy going to. The regeneration of Altrincham has mostly happened in the last decade, and during the time our story takes place, around 2002 and 2003, whilst the town centre wasn't as busy or flourishing as it is now, Altrincham was still a very desirable place to live, and it wasn't the kind of place you'd expect to hear of violent attacks taking place in the streets. But on Sunday the 29th of June 2003, Something happened in Altrincham which would send shockwaves through the community and the English legal system, and would involve one of the most bizarre backstories to a crime you may have ever heard. By all accounts, the 29th of June had been a particularly hot summer's day, and it would still have felt really pleasant by the time the early evening came around. In an area of Altrincham town centre called Goose Green, two teenage boys are seen on CCTV turning into an alleyway. Now, this alleyway wasn't a cut through to another part of town and it didn't lead anywhere. In fact, all that was at the other end was a steep, inaccessible drop, so the pair really had no reason to be heading down there at all. Eventually, 25 minutes pass by before a call is made to police by one of the boys, a then 16-year-old who will be calling Mark. He says that someone has attacked his 14-year-old friend, who we'll call John. Mark said the attacker was in his 20s, wearing black jeans and a black hoodie. 
this is rough, but Mark said the man had stabbed John twice in a random attack. The first stab was to his chest and that was the lighter of the two wounds, but the second injury was a six inch deep cut to his abdomen, which actually pierced his kidney and liver. I'm sorry, I know that's really horrible. Of course, emergency services then arrive and take John to nearby Withenshaw Hospital, where he actually almost died twice on the operating table as doctors removed his gallbladder, which was necessary to help save his life after sustaining that second, deeper stab wound. Although he was critically ill and on a respirator for days afterwards, John miraculously survived the attack and the subsequent complications. Police believed Mark's account of the attack and they appealed to the public to try and help catch the man who had so violently assaulted John. According to Vanity Fair, Detective Chief Inspector Julian Ross told the media, quote, this was a seemingly unprovoked attack and we have no idea why this happened. However, this initial search for the perpetrator did not last long. Police soon got hold of that CCTV footage that showed the teenagers walking into the alleyway and quickly realised that Mark's story was far from the truth about what had taken place that Sunday. No man in a black hoodie had entered the passageway before the boys, nor left afterwards. It was clear that the only two people in the alleyway that day had been John and Mark. Reluctantly, and after a lot of pressure from police, John confirmed that Mark was in fact the one who had stabbed him, but claimed he didn't know why. Police then swiftly moved to arrest Mark on suspicion of attempted murder, and he was placed in a juvenile detention centre. Now clearly this is a completely shocking incident, and the question of what could have possibly led to Mark trying to take John's life was one police wanted to try and understand as a matter of urgency. Could it have been a spur-of-the-moment fight that had gone badly wrong? Or maybe the result of an ongoing feud between the two teenagers that had spiralled horribly out of control? For four months after the attack, investigators worked to try and piece together Mark's motive for the brutal stabbing and the circumstances around what had happened in that alleyway. What they discovered reads like the plot of a crime thriller, although in many ways it's wilder than the imaginations of most novelists. These details would lead to additional charges being brought in the case, although this time not against Mark. In a completely unheard of turn of events, 14-year-old John was charged with inciting his own murder. At the time, the prosecutor in the case, Nicholas Clark, said, I'm not aware of any other case where somebody's incited somebody to murder themselves. In order to understand what on earth led to this astonishing charge being brought against John, we need to turn the clock back to nine months before the day the stabbing took place. Now, John and Mark were both from Greater Manchester, but they hadn't actually known of each other before they connected on an internet chat room. For a little bit of context, in the early 2000s, chat rooms were a bit different from what we know today. I remember certain internet providers like AOL having their own chat rooms where you could speak to people from all over the world and it definitely felt like the wild west of the internet because there was just very little regulation as to what went on in them. You also had forums where people with specific interests would tend to gather together. And then of course you had things like instant messenger platforms with MSN being one of the most popular. 
it all felt a lot more anonymous than the social media that we know today, for the most part anyway. And it was on MSN Messenger that John and Mark first started to correspond with each other. John had been given a laptop to help him with his homework at the age of 13, and it seems that he'd quickly become quite addicted to chatting with strangers online. In the Vanity Fair piece I mentioned, it's claimed John would contact between 20 to 30 people per night before eventually stumbling across Mark. From the outset, whilst Mark was honest about his identity within the MSN conversations, the same can't be said for John. In fact, from their very first message exchange, John adopted a persona that wasn't his own, presenting himself as a character he had created, a 16-year-old girl named Rachel West. Mark and Rachel messaged each other frequently, and it didn't take long for Mark to form a close emotional attachment to the girl he thought he was speaking with. John had used a photo he presumably found online as Rachel's image, and Mark soon found that he was falling in love with the person he believed he was exchanging messages with day after day. However, the real John was not completely absent from these conversations. In fact, before long, he introduced himself to Mark as Rachel's stepbrother, and Mark would often believe he was in an MSN chat room with both John and Rachel. It was in these conversations that John began to create an entire world in which he and his fictional stepsister Rachel lived, and this world was far from happy. He would tell Mark that there was a man named Kevin who was stalking, threatening and terrorising himself and Rachel. And at one point, he even manipulated Mark into performing, let's say, private acts on his webcam to appease this stalker and stop him from harming Rachel. I know, it's incredibly disturbing but it does illustrate just how quickly John managed to exert control over Mark. As you can imagine, Mark was desperate to meet Rachel in person. He really believed he was in love with her and he asked about meeting up increasingly frequently. By the 3rd of April 2003, John realised that it wasn't going to be possible to hold off Mark much longer and he made the decision to remove the Rachel character from the narrative. John actually told Mark that Rachel was dead and that she'd been abducted, abused and murdered by her stalker, Kevin. John even posed as Kevin in a chat and described to Mark what he had done, writing, kicked all her stomach, put her head underwater, then out, freezing cold, and she stained my sheets when she was bleeding. You weren't there for her, however much she screamed for you. It must have been genuinely traumatising for Mark. He really did believe what he was being told and it started to impact his day-to-day -day life as well. His school grades started to dramatically drop and he later spoke about how angry and upset the death of the person he thought was his girlfriend had left him. But despite the Rachel figure now being gone from the equation, John found he couldn't let the connection he'd made with Mark just fizzle out. As the weeks had gone by, John found that he himself had developed feelings for Mark. Soon their hours and hours of online conversations were no longer enough for him and the teenagers began to meet in person. 
Now, this is just my opinion, but I do wonder if perhaps these real-life meetings served as additional fuel for John's infatuation with Mark, especially as John would feel incredibly jealous if his friend received attention from girls whilst he was around, because he started to take their online interactions to whole new levels. The Rachel and Kevin characters were just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the world that John began creating when he was talking to Mark. A fictional girl named Lindsay East was brought into the picture, but as soon as Mark began to take a romantic interest in her, John swiftly killed her off too, actually claiming that she'd been assassinated by the British government on the 27th of April. To our ears, this clearly sounds very outlandish, but I think it's important to remember that John's various personas had strong emotional holds on Mark, and he was only 16 at the time that this was happening. After Lindsay's exit, John decided to bring Rachel back to life, claiming that she had been in a coma and had since given birth to Mark's baby, despite the fact that obviously they'd never met because Rachel didn't exist. Much later, John would speak about these stories saying, quote, I was surprised Mark believed it all. I would say things that didn't make sense. Personally, based on everything that happened, I think it's reasonable to assume that Mark had a very trusting and perhaps naive nature, and I think this was probably one of the reasons that John chose him out of all the people he tried to connect with on MSN to go down this road with in the first place. One account that I read did mention that despite being older, Mark was the less academically inclined of the pair, and John perhaps realised that he had an intellectual advantage over his friend. Anyway, soon after reappearing, Rachel mysteriously disappeared again, and with this, John decided to introduce the character who would facilitate the darkest turn yet in this story, a 40-something British Secret Service agent called Janet Dobinson. Now remember, by this point, John had laid months of groundwork, feeding Mark increasingly wild stories, which he seemed to become invested in time and time again. When John brought this imaginary secret service agent into the conversation, he endeared her to Mark by talking about her unhappy marriage, her children, and all of the crazy details of her job. At the same time, John and Mark were meeting more often in real life too, and one day John actually skipped school to go and hang out with Mark at his house. Around this time, John's mum had grown increasingly concerned about her son's strange behaviour as he'd become incredibly withdrawn. One of his teachers had actually noticed this too, remarking that John would often sit alone reading books about mental illnesses, and she did end up speaking to his mum about it. All of this prompted John's mum to take a look at his laptop, and she was very concerned with what she discovered. After realising how often John was in touch with Mark, and after reading chats between the boys and the mysterious Janet Dobinson, she confiscated John's laptop before arranging a meeting with Mark's parents. When the parents met, they all agreed that it was best to limit the time that the boys were spending together, and that they should definitely cut off all contact with Janet Dobinson, whoever that really was. But this plan wasn't all that successful. John soon found a way to get hold of his laptop again, and the teenagers continued to remain in close contact with each other and the fictional Janet. Whether it was because he felt desperate to keep Mark interested, or whether it was part of his plan all along, John decided it was now time to kick off the chain of events which would lead to his own attempted murder. 
Janet told Mark that his friend John was actually dying from a brain tumour. But that wasn't all. She also said that John was the key to accessing a safe at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, which contained all the world's richest jewels. She said that John was worth £568 billion. And for reasons that don't entirely make sense, which we know is a theme here, the government needed John dead quickly. Janet promised Mark that if he could help to end John's life before the brain tumour did, he would be rewarded with a huge sum of money, a job as a spy, a meeting with the then Prime Minister Tony Blair, sexual favours and more. Bear with me, I know this is getting next level bizarre. At the same time, John, writing as himself, sent Mark a note confirming that he did in fact have a large brain tumour, which clearly added authenticity to what Mark was being told by the person he believed to be Janet. John, writing as Janet, told Mark that there would be an abort code of 6969, that if he heard shouted over a tannoy at any point during the mission, he should let John live. By this point, Mark was so convinced by Janet that he agreed to carry out the attack on John. He was instructed to buy a certain kind of knife, ensure he stabbed John deeply enough so that he would bleed to death, and then call an ambulance, but not straight away. Janet assured Mark that she'd meet him at the police station afterwards, and on the 28th of June 2003, they had their final conversation via MSN. Mark wrote, You want me to take him to Trafford Centre and kill him in the middle of the Trafford Centre? That's what you're asking me? For reference, the Trafford Centre is a huge shopping centre near Manchester. Writing as Janet, John replied, yes. The next day, the 29th of June, the two boys actually visited the Trafford Centre together to buy a large kitchen knife before heading to Altrincham Town Centre. And from there, we know that Mark carried out the act that John had put him up to disguised as Janet. The abort code was not spoken, and as per the instructions, Mark spoke the words, I love you, bro, to John as he stabbed him. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, initially, police had no idea how complex and disturbing the events leading up to the stabbing were, and as soon as they started to look deeper into John and Mark's relationship, everything started to rapidly unravel. As detectives began examining both boys' computers and started to realise the scale of what had been going on, they actually called in a criminal intelligence analyst called Sally Hogg to help with their investigation. She spent weeks going through over 56,000 lines of conversation between the teens and found 193 separate email addresses present across the computers. According to The Guardian, Sally Hogg was eventually able to link all of John's characters together by finding patterns in things like word misspellings. Putting the whole case together and making sense of it all was no easy task for the investigators, but once they were able to map out the chain of events, John's role in his own attempted murder became much clearer. In 2004, both Mark and John appeared at Manchester Crown Court to face their respective charges. Mark's being a charge of attempted murder and John's being incitement to murder and perverting the course of justice. Both boys pleaded guilty. 
Mark received a two-year supervision order, which in a nutshell, it's a sentence frequently given to underage offenders and it's designed to help them and for them to work with professionals to overcome the issues that led them to offend in the first place. Mark was also banned from having any contact with John and banned from chat rooms and he was only allowed to access the internet under adult supervision. Very interestingly, John himself was actually given an even longer supervision order at three years instead of two and was also banned from contacting Mark. The prosecutor, Nicholas Clark, said, quote, I would say of the two teenagers, John was the more wicked and more criminally culpable. And Judge David Madison, who was the recorder of Manchester, said, skilled writers of fiction would struggle to conjure up such a plot as that which arises here. It's staggering to be dealing with a case that arises out of a 14-year-old boy's invention of false personalities, false relationships and events arranged for his own killing at the hands of a 16-year-old boy who he had met via an internet chat room. He also noted that in normal circumstances, a crime of this nature would have resulted in lengthy prison time for the offenders, but that these could not be described as any normal circumstances. So unsurprisingly, the biggest question that I was left with after I first looked into this story was, why did John do everything that he did? What had happened in the 14 short years that he'd been on this planet to lead him to this awful, life-altering course of action? Because no one wakes up one morning and decides to embark on a path like this, let alone carry it all the way through to the point that John did. After both boys had been sentenced, the detective chief inspector I mentioned earlier, Julian Ross, mentioned that whilst John said he was unhappy at home, there was nothing that the police were aware of that would, I guess, fully explain his actions. But personally, I find that very strange. It almost makes me think that because both boys pleaded guilty and there wasn't a full trial, there wasn't that legal need for John's motives to be intensely investigated. So they weren't. In most news articles from the time, it's mentioned that John was in love with Mark and that this was an unrequited love story and that's what triggered everything. But the Vanity Fair piece delves a lot deeper into John's childhood and early teenage years and notes that at the age of four, John discovered that he originally had a different surname and that the person he thought was his father was actually his stepdad. When he was seven, his stepdad actually left the family and he remembers feelings of depression creeping in around this time. The article talks about John being bullied and taunted at school and how he kept these experiences to himself rather than talking about them or seeking help. It kind of seems to me that once John discovered the internet and chat rooms specifically, he really did become addicted very quickly. Perhaps he used them as a coping mechanism initially, but ultimately things turned incredibly dark. John's lawyer was a man named Jonathan Goldberg and he spoke in court about how John always had a very gentle, slightly withdrawn personality. The lawyer also reinforced the unrequited love story explanation, saying that was the reason that John had wanted to end his life. As for Mark, his lawyer, David Hatton, spoke about how he didn't believe it was an exaggeration to say that John had brainwashed Mark. He said, he didn't find it easy to explain to me why he had fallen for it and been so stupid. The lawyer's words, not mine. He noted that after being arrested, Mark was, quote, still believing he was acting on behalf of the British Secret Service and held a fear that if he said anything, he might be in danger himself. 
Although some people have called this into question, saying, it's strange that Mark didn't ask for Janet Dobinson immediately after he'd been placed in the juvenile detention centre. But really, this whole case is so bizarre that I don't think many of the normal rules of conduct can be applied to it. My personal thoughts on the story have changed as I've researched it more and more, and I think some of that is to do with the context of the time that it took place. So much of what was written about the case in the early to mid-2000s very much painted John as this evil mastermind, but I would hope that in 2022 we could look at him through a slightly more sympathetic lens. Clearly, what he did was wrong, but I do wonder how many opportunities were missed to address some of the underlying issues in his life. We do know that his mum and that one teacher did recognise a change in his behaviour, so it wasn't as if no one was looking out for him, but with the internet and chat rooms being a lot newer back in 2003, it's very possible that the authority figures around him didn't realise the potential harms that came with unrestricted and unmonitored internet access, at least not until his final plan had already formed in his mind. But then again, his mum did try to restrict what he was doing online. She checked up on those MSN conversations and found the chats between the two boys and Janet Dobinson. She confiscated his laptop and she set up that meeting with Mark's parents. So there were boundaries being put in place, but it seems like John managed to get around them each and every time. It's a really difficult one. Just to be clear, I'm not excusing what he did because by all accounts, he's a very intelligent person and to construct the world that he did required a certain level of commitment and serious thoughts. But I feel people often forget that he was just 14 years old at the time. Whilst he absolutely did hurt Mark mentally and emotionally, he ultimately did also try to end his own life despite how extreme his method was. In many ways, I don't have a definitive opinion on John. And all I can hope is that he received intensive help, intensive therapy and treatment after all of this and that he's living a better life now. When it comes to Mark, I can't help but feel sympathy for him. I don't personally believe that under other circumstances he would be violently attacking someone. And I do agree with his lawyer that he was probably brainwashed by John to a certain extent. Again, what he did was absolutely wrong, but it was all so complex. Remember, he fully believed that John was going to die soon from a brain tumour, and speaking as Janet, John had completely convinced him that he was carrying out orders from the British Secret Service. I do feel that he was groomed into doing what he did over the months and months of speaking with all of these different characters, and overall I think that whilst yes, the story is totally bizarre, it's also incredibly sad. I really, really hope that Mark received all the help that he needed to come to terms with what happened and the crime that he committed. There is very little to no information available about John or Mark from recent years, and I personally feel that that's for the best. What happens to us in our formative teenage years can have a massive impact on the rest of our lives, and most adults wouldn't be well equipped to deal with something like this, let alone teenagers. I really do hope that both of their lives took way more positive turns once their supervision orders were completed. Like I mentioned in the introduction, I think that even all of these years later, there are still lessons to be learned from this case. As a society, we are way, way more aware of the dangers of the internet now, especially when it comes to children, but at the same time, the internet itself is so much more present in our lives than it was in the early 2000s. 
scammers and predators are so much more cunning than ever before. And I think this case can still serve as a stark reminder to be incredibly careful when speaking to people online. I'm not a parent myself, but many parents I know are super conscious about monitoring their kids' internet usage now and speaking with them not only about keeping safe, but teaching them about the right ways to behave online themselves. But aside from the internet aspect of this story, I know you'll always get certain people complaining that kids now are treated too softly and that their mental health is disproportionately focused on and fussed over, but seriously, Although this story is exceptionally strange and occurrences like this are very, very, very rare, it still does show how incredibly important addressing potential mental health struggles is, especially in children and teenagers. It makes me feel very grateful for how much mental health issues have been destigmatized in recent years, and I would hope that if John and Mark's story had taken place today, someone would have intervened long before it ever had chance to reach that conclusion in the alleyway. Oh, I know that was a very heavy story, so thank you for sticking with me until the end. As I mentioned at the start, there are mental health resources linked in the show notes, and as always, I wanted to shout out the sources that helped me put together my research for this episode. So we have the Vanity Fair piece by Judy Backratch from October the 10th, 2006, an article from The Independent from May 2004, and another one from May 2004 from The Guardian. I would love to know your thoughts on this story. Where do you land on the culpability argument? Do you think that Mark's punishment was harsh enough? Or do you think that he should have been given more leeway with all of the circumstances considered? Please do let me know your views. All I'd ask is if you're commenting publicly about the case, please do only use the names John and Mark. I know at the time there were some major reporting restrictions around the case and I wouldn't want anyone to be getting in any hot water. I feel like every week I have a new way to get in touch and this week is no exception. I was asked to create a Facebook group in addition to the Facebook page that we have as a group makes it a lot easier for you guys to start discussions and threads. So if you search things are about to get weird on Facebook, you'll find both the page and the discussion group now. The page is gonna be just like general updates about the podcast, but the group is where we can get into those really great conversations. And I think it'd be really fun to not only talk about the episode and the stories but anything else to do with true crime or strange stories or your own weird stories it'd be really great to continue all of our chats over there if you prefer instagram the handle is at things get weird podcast and on twitter it's at about to get weird you can also email me at things get weird podcast at gmail.com too Thank you so, so much to everyone who's left me a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It literally only takes two seconds to do. So after you finish listening to this episode, please do feel free to click those five stars if you've enjoyed. It really does mean a lot and it helps me out massively too. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Weird.